I would love for you to have a Bible in front of you, either a pew Bible or your own Bible or a Bible and a device of some sort. Um, and I would love for you to open to Ephesians 5 as we continue our series on discipleship. One of the things that we are seeing right now in this part of our series is how the family is essential in the discipling process, in the making of disciples process. We're going to finish the series uh, in a few weeks with uh, looking at uh, the how-tos of discipleship in general, not just in the family, but in the church as a whole. But before we get there, I think it's important that we look at how the family figures in discipling the nations. We have a God who's promised to be a God to us and to our children, so we should expect to see uh, church, the church growing through families, through children, through husbands and wives discipling one another, through parents discipling children, through siblings discipling one another. That should be our expectation as we have a God who is faithful to the promises that he makes. And as we're doing that, we're already look at the role of the woman in discipling her husband. Now we're in the process of looking at the role of the husband discipling as a discipler for the wife. Last uh, two weeks ago, we saw that uh, we, we, we looked at this passage and pulled out Christ and looked at what Christ does to the church. And uh, so that would prepare us to actually consider the role of the husband as a discipler because it parallels, is analogical to the role of Christ toward uh, the church. I've said this several times, the family is the basic unit for society and for the church. Everything's built upon the church, the, the, the family. The family was the first institution instituted by God. We find the family being instituted in Genesis 1 and 2. The government being instituted in Genesis 9. And the church being instituted starting at Genesis chapter 12, but really cemented in Genesis 15 and 17. So you see that the family is, is basic, it's foundational for society and for uh, the church. And the family, as the basic and foundation unit to society and the church, is being under attack. I think uh, you have to be living under a rock to not see that, uh, that the family is under attack. Uh, the world and Satan know that if they destroy the foundation of society and the church, they will have won the battle. So there's a, the, the world and Satan is out to get the family, is out to destroy the family. Is, uh, sadly, Satan seems to be more aware of that than the church. Satan seems to be more aware of the importance of the family as a basic unit for society and for the church than the church itself is aware of, of that. <clears throat> I don't know. It's, sometimes it's difficult to understand how statistics are arrived at, uh, but uh, statistically they say that there's no difference in the rate of divorce between church and non-church people, that the, the divorces, that they have divorced, that marriages are ending at divorce at the same rate, and uh, even in the, in the broadly evangelical church, they have that 
going on there. So you can see that the church is not super aware or willing to recognize the importance of the family. And you can see these attacks from Satan in the shaping of public policy regarding marriage and sexuality. It's hard to believe that it was January of 2015 that the Supreme Court decision on Obergefell came out. That's when um, so-called homosexual marriage became the law of the land. We're talking about seven years. And it seems like it's been society forever. It seems to be the norm for the longest time. You can, you can see these attacks also in the transgender agenda, where it's this great effort to normalize transgenderism in our society. I, I, Andrew Hoy mentioned something at the beginning of the school year that once they return to school this year, I think he mentioned 50% of the female students. Well, I may have like, said that exaggeratingly. A large number of the female students decided that they were transgender. Amy's shaking her head. In, or, uh, in, or Yes. So you can see that going on there. Um, great, great uh, marketing, really a successful marketing campaign to normalize transgenderism or this idea of gender fluidity as being the norm in society. So the, the, the attack is real, and you'd be a fool to deny that the attack is happening. Right? You'd be really, in some ways, to um, put your family in danger if you don't recognize that this, is, this attack it is happening. So we must fight back. We can't not fight back. It, it is really uh, one of the ways that Christ is going to build his church as his people fight back the attacks that are going on in the family. So we need to be involved in the political process. If the Supreme Court st- stick, st- sticks to its guns and indeed overthrow Roe v. Wade, then the fight goes back to the states. Okay? And what we do becomes way more meaningful than it's ever been in my entire life. Right? Uh, since 1973, very, since January 1973, very little that's been done at the state level has had any impact. It's going to change. So if you're serious about the family, you're going to need to get involved. Right? So it's time to start just marching once a year and holding little cute signs and actually be involved in the political process. Starting by knowing who represents you. And if the person is not a good one, start uh, working on replacing uh, that, that person. We need to pray for the Lord's mercy upon our society and, and church. Fervently, earnestly praying. In the history of revivals, it's very hard to figure out exactly how the Lord brings about revival because the Spirit blows like the wind and nobody knows where it's coming from, where it's going, and yet it comes. But it seems like one of the common elements in revival is the church of Jesus Christ getting on her knees and fervently praying. Now, I've, I've mentioned what John Bunyan says about prayer. Often says, you know, you can do more than praying till you have prayed. You can do more than praying, but you can't do that till you have prayed. We tend to forget the power of prayer. We tend to forget 
the idea of storming the mercy seat of God and not letting him go till he blesses us. We forget that it is the means by which God has appointed to bring his will to pass. So we need to pray. We need to fervently pray for, for the church, for our families, for our society. That's one of the ways that we are... Um, it's one of the ways that we are salt to this world by preserving uh, society. And we do that through prayer. But having said all that, the most effective way to fight this war is by faithfully executing the roles that God has given us in the family. So we, we should be politically involved. We must be praying. But at the end of the day, the biggest weapon we have is being faithful to the roles that God has called us to execute in our families. In other words, the best weapon we have is obedience to God's calling in our lives. That's the best weapon, bar none, is to being faithful to God's calling in our lives. And we need to disciple each other in these things. So that's why we're talking about the family. That's why we're talking about discipleship and the role of the wife as a disciple, the, whole, the role of the husband as a discipler, the role of parents, as we're going to see in the future, as disciples, the role of siblings as disciples as well. And guys, obedience in the family must start with us. Obedience in the family must start with the husband. That's where it all starts. If you're not married yet, that's the challenge. Put yourself in the position where if the Lord brings you a wife, that you are able to lead her in obedience. If you are married, I'll tell you right now, I'm not a prophet, but I know exactly what God's will for your life is. No questions about it. It is for you to lead your family in obedience and righteousness the Word of God. And as we look at this, please don't, don't think that I'm speaking from a position of conquering. My wife can attest to that as we go through, through this. And as a matter of fact, you don't want teachers and preachers in the church who have arrived. You know why? Because they don't exist. <laughs> if somebody claims that, he's very misguided. right? So we are a fellowship of repentant people who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ who are in the process of being changed to becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to consider these things together. Have you ever asked yourself why is it that Paul in Ephesians 5 singles out submission and love? Have you ever asked yourself the question why submission and love? Well, the reason for that is that he had, um, these two areas were the two areas that were affected by the fall, um, primarily at, in the relationship of a husband and wife. Remember, this is what God says to the woman in Genesis chapter 3. He says to the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So that's, that's the pronouncement to the woman of the result of the fall. As a side note, one of my professors at the Masters University uh, believes that this 
verse would be translated, you greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, and that means that having multiple kids is a curse. The ability to have multiple kids is a curse. Now, he's, he's really good at biblical counseling, but he is a Baptist. <laughs> and I mean by that... And I mean by that, that he doesn't understand God's promises in the, the, the family, uh, in the multiplicity of children. So I do not believe that God is cursing the woman with being super fertile. That's how he would interpret that. Uh, there's, a, there's a blessing in, in the quiver full, and, and the, the fullness of the quiver is relative to the family. It's not a, a particular number. It's relative to the family. Some families... Man, the kid is a really big arrow, and it's the only one that fits in the quiver. So other families, now you can have more arrows in that uh, quiver there. But I want you to notice that very last, um, the two last lines on the slide. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So when God says that as a result of sinning against him, the wife's desire will be for her husband... He is saying that her desire will be for the role of her husband. She will want to usurp the role given to her husband. Her natural inclination would be to, to want to do what her husband is called to do. She will naturally find it difficult to submit herself to her husband. And that's why Paul addresses the idea of submission when he talks about the roles in marriage. That's not the only thing that's true about the wife in, some, in marriage. But that's the thing that might be the most difficult thing to do in marriage. When God says, as a result of sinning against him, that the husband will rule over the wife, he's saying that instead of being a loving leader, he will naturally be a tyrant or an idiot. And I mean idiot in the original original meaning of the word. An idiot is a self-centered person. Uh, the word idios in Greek means self-centered. So uh, the, the result of sin, the husband is going to be a tyrant or a, an idiot, just a self-centered uh, person there. <clears throat> Selfishness will naturally mark his attitude towards his wife. Instead of seeing his wife as the perfect helper God has given him, he will naturally see her as someone to subjugate. So that, that's part of the nature of, of the man, the sinful nature of the man. That's what I mean, that he's naturally going to tend that way. So it should be clear to us that in order for a wife to be a godly wife and a husband to be a godly husband, they need to be liberated from the, their sinful nature through the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a godly husband, you cannot be a godly wife, apart from the work of the Spirit in your heart. It is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that these roles can be fulfilled. So not till we die to ourselves and live by the resurrection of Jesus will we be able to submit and love like we are called to do. So the Christian family is rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, you don't have a Christian family. You're not going to be able to fulfill the roles that God calls you to do apart from 
the regenerating, justifying, and sanctifying work of the Spirit in your heart that happens as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions so far? Carol? I think, shooting from their hip, their hip here, and that's answer. I'll say that for the recording. Uh, is I think that we as pastors have become so worried about offending people that we won't preach on Second Corinthians six, where it says that is actually uh, uh, dating and marrying an unbeliever. The marrying an unbeliever is the equivalent of uniting Christ to Satan. And, because we're, and then because we're not willing to say that, we're also not willing to say that dating, romantic relationships, should be, um, with the purpose of it, should be marriage. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to marry everybody you date, but that should be the mindset. And if that's the purpose of dating, is to see if this is somebody that you should covenant for life, and you can't covenant for life with an unbeliever, the implication is that then you, shouldn't, you cannot be in a dating relationship with an unbeliever either. So it boils down, to, I think, to, with a, to a desire to not upset people, a desire to be liked, and so there's a general unwillingness to preach the full counsel of God. And I think also for years in the church, no matter what the where, what the text of the sermon was, it became a John 3.16 sermon. Meaning, there was a misunderstanding of what the Lord's Day was for. It was seen as an evangelistic thing, which is not, is the, the, the gathered people of God worshiping Him. So instead of discipling the people, there was always this come to Jesus, be saved sort of teaching. So you have... The, the church, the spiritual growth of the church was stunted by that. Because again, we're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Right? The guide should be Acts 20 20. Sorry. A church with a 2020 vision will follow what Paul says in Acts 20 20, which is where he says it's, he's preaching the whole counsel. Of God, so I think that's just on the spot thinking about. I think that's one of the reasons. Anybody else want to add to any of that? The potential reasons why we see an increase of mixed relationships. All right. Any other questions, Adam? I would answer that maybe by saying that the fathers are, are absent and not leaving their sons in appropriate um, decisions in that regard. Yeah. Those statistically, the other way around, is the father's not leading the, 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 the daughters. You have more women in relationship with non-believers than you have guys in the church, which statistically, again, makes a little bit of sense since uh, evangelicalism in general is um, dominated by women as far as the, the numbers in the pews. And so just there's less of... 
just simple physics, right? Less molecules, they're gonna, not going to bump into each other uh, there. And then we also have uh, men taking forever to mature. Like the average gamer plays 25 hours of, of video games a week, and he's 37. So you can see that there's a, a lack of maturity going on there as well in general in, in, in the men. To the point that uh, you have a new category that's been a new term to define a new category of males. It's called adultescence. It's a mixture between an adult and an uh, adolescent because men are just not growing up. So, Anything else? Jim Weston. I think you'll get to it, the Genesis 17 piece. Well, the way we're going, we're not going to get anywhere, really. <laughs> <laughs> so we can come, I'll take you to talk about it later. Then. No, go ahead. Um, I was thinking, I was, it was the, the last piece, he shall rule over you, mm-hmm. and, and then he immediately goes into 17 saying, you know, you're, this is your job. Because you didn't do it, this is what's going to happen. I, it seems like that transition happens there, but I don't know if that's correct. So, Jan 17 is one of the steps to fix this. Right. right. So, Abraham, as a representative man, the one that uh, represents us all in the covenant with the church, right, we're children of Abraham, according to Romans chapter 4. God says, Abraham, the way that you're not going to rule over her as a sinful way is here. I'm giving you the word. You're going to teach the word to your people. Here's a sacrament. You're going to observe the sacrament. And then if people are unwilling to do that, you must cut them off. And then so here we have the three marks of a faithful church present there with Abraham. All right, we'll continue. So, having said all that, and I had you open the Bible to Ephesians 5, and I think we're going to get there uh, to Ephesians 5. I wanted to, before we get to Ephesians 5, is to consider one verse in the parallel passage. So you have Ephesians and Colossians as these two epistles that fit within each other. It's likely that Paul wrote each other within weeks. They're going to the same general area. The big difference is Ephesians, Paul spent three years there. In Colossae, he'd never been. But they fit together well, and he, they, they out, you can outline both the same way. The only dif- uh, the, Another big difference is that both talk about the sovereignty of Christ, but in Ephesians, Paul focuses on the sovereignty of Christ over the church. And in Colossians, Paul focuses on the sovereignty of Christ over the whole world. So in, Ephesians, in Colossians chapter 3, where he's talking about the same things as he is in Ephesians 5, he adds something. It's a much shorter text, because in Ephesians 5, you have verses 25 through 33 addressing the role of the man. And if he, in Colossians 3, it's just one verse, verse 19. So, guys, we can memorize that one. be easier. And in some ways, even fuller in its brevity. It adds one item. The idea of bitterness. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So, as we look at the role of the husband, husbands as husbands, this is the first thing I want to talk about. The idea of bitterness in marriage, especially as it comes from the husband. Because Paul addresses that to the husband, it leads us to think that the husband's more likely to be bitter. 
Now, it doesn't mean that the wife doesn't struggle with bitterness, but this is an area where the husband seemed to struggle more since Paul brings that up. And when he says, I do not, uh, when he says, do not be bitter toward them, it's literally, do not make yourself bitter towards them. It's a, it's a middle um, voice verb. Do not make yourself bitter toward them. That's the command that Paul gives to the husband. Now, I'm going to quote somebody here that I, want, I don't want you to read them. Okay? It, bad theology, this guy, okay? Especially as it relates to you being justified before God. So, um, what does I say? Does I say read him or not? No, don't read him. But what he says about this verse is too good to not refer to, okay? He says this. His name is Anti Wright. And he says, in particular, talking about the husband, he must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her, that is the wife, being the person she is, to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be like him, a real human being, and not merely a projection of his own hopes and fantasies. A lot of times, guys, when we are bitter towards our wives, it's because she's not some, some dream that we, we had for her. She's not acting in our own image uh, uh, as we desire for her, instead of our desire being that she becomes more like Jesus Christ. So I think uh, N.T. Wright has a, a very proper warning for us here. So Paul is commanding us husbands, by the grace of God, not to have an angry attitude toward our wives. The uh, bitterness will lead to jealousy and competition. It's interesting. Do you remember the episode in Acts chapter 8? Yes, chapter 8. Not, that's where the, we, we remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, which is in Acts chapter 8. But earlier on, we have this interaction between Peter and a false prophet. Uh, the prophet wants to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from Peter. His name was Simon. That became known in history as Simony when you'd buy church offices. And Peter rebukes him. And it's interesting that he says that he's doing that, that he wants what the apostles have because he was bitter. He says in Acts 8.23, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So bitterness led Simon to be jealous of the gifts that the apostles had and willing to sin in order to get that gift. So, guys, bitterness will lead to jealousy and competition in our marriage. We have to be aware of that. Bitterness is characteristic of a man without Christ. You have your Bibles hopefully open to Ephesians 5. If you just flip one chapter back... Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. It says, Paul says there, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Uh, it's important to notice that Paul is not necessarily trying to get out of those different categories, but he's trying to talk about the same thing, bitterness and anger, from all kinds of different perspectives, so that because we're very good at finding excuses. Oh, but Paul didn't precisely say this, so I can hide myself over here. So he uses this string of words that are somewhat synonymous, 
so that we have nowhere to hide. So this is to be put away, right? And then be replaced in verse 34, 32 with kindness and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. But notice that here Paul describes bitterness as a characteristic of a man without Christ. We are not that, brothers. We're not that. So we all, yours truly included, need to repent from that and not behave as a man without Christ. The Bible also tells us that bitterness causes us to miss out on God's grace. And because of that, it generates disunity. When we miss out on God's grace, disunity is generated. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 and, uh, 14 and 15, the apostle says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you see there's a colon there, which now he's going to describe how that pursuit is done. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. <clears throat> so you can see there that bitterness produces this unity, and bitterness is overcome by holiness. In verse 14, pursue holiness that we may not miss the grace of God. This is not a self-righteous holiness mustered up solely by our own efforts, but a holiness generated by the grace of God and grounded on repentance. And this holy living in all areas. Uh, God is, is comprehensive in what He wants from us. Holy living in all areas, not just here, but not there. Holiness in all areas will cause us to receive the grace of God. And notice that Paul continues to follow in Ephesians 4, the put off and put on pattern of the previous verse. Put off bitterness, put on love. In, in, in Ephesians 4, starting verse 20, Paul says, look, you're not who you were before Christ. Christ has changed you. But there are still kind of uh, leftovers of who you were before Christ that you need to work at um, changing by the grace of God. You put those off. Now use the word for undressing yourself as if you're taking off the uniform, the jersey of the previous team, and you put on what is consistent with who, with who you truly are in Christ there. And it follow, continues with the idea of bitterness towards the wife. You put off bitterness towards your wife. You put on Love toward your wife. Any questions before we continue? All right, so we're going to then jump into the put on love for your wife in Ephesians chapter 5. F.F. <clears throat> um, Bruce in his commentary on Ephesians says, uh, this is not simply a matter of affectionate feeling or sexual attraction. It involves his active and unceasing care for her well-being. Douglas Moo, also in his commentary, says, The leadership that husbands rightly exhibit in marriage is not to be carried out harshly or selfishly, but lovingly. That's what we are to do. I want you to think with me for a second here. Have you ever heard the charge 
that somehow Christianity demeans women and that this idea of submission was a um, culturally bound first century idea that's no longer for us anymore. We're enlightened people. We are even more than that. We're postmodern people. We, our minds are open. We shouldn't let these first centuries demeaning ideas to be part of us. Two things. Though the charge could be leveled against Paul, that he was just going along with the culture of the time when he said for the women to the wife to submit to her husband, the idea that a husband should love his wife was completely counter-cultural. I've never seen a feminist up in arms saying, don't obey Paul, don't love your wives. That's just first century culture. But these two things go together. This idea that husbands to love his wife is a revolutionary concept in a society where wives were practically owned by their husbands. That's a society in which Paul's original audience is in. The wife had no rights. She was a possession, virtually a possession of the husband. So he's revolutionary, revolutionizing society. He's not just going along with what society, the culture, is teaching. And this is another evidence that the faithful teaching of the scriptures is liberating rather than repressive. If somebody bothers to, to look at history, you're going to find that a couple things have happened everywhere Christianity has gone. One, literacy has gone up. So Christianity is always, you know, Christians are often um, labeled as ignorant people. Christianity is against uh, education. And there are those that have been that way in the history of Christianity. But generally speaking, where Christianity has gone, literacy, education has flourished. Second, wherever Christianity has gone, the place of women in society has gone up. And that's just a truth that if you look at history, cannot be denied. But a lot of people look at history like this, right? So that they will see whatever they want. The, the pattern, as we saw two weeks ago, the pattern or example of the husband's love for his wife is Christ's love for his church. In verse 25 of Ephesians 5, we see that the pattern is that the husband is to love her unconditionally. Later on, we see that he is to love her sacrificially. That he is to love her with a purifying love. He is to love her as he loves himself, with, by nourishing her, by cherishing her, by leading her. So these are seven elements that describes Christ's relationship to the church that are analogous to the husband's relationship to the wife. Okay? So Paul says that, she, that, he, that he is to love her unconditionally. Now the world has cheapened the meaning of love, so we need to be reminded what the true meaning is. In this passage of 1 Corinthians 13, that Paul is not talking just about marital love, it's love in general, but applies to the love for her husband to his wife. He defines love as Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How is this different than the world's definition of love today? We have seven minutes. We can. That's other oriented. Other oriented, yes. Right. Other oriented, others oriented than self. What else? How is this different than the world? Sonia. All right, so the world defines love as a feeling, much like a hole, right? You can fall into it and out of it, uh, um, and uh, here is more of actions. Brandon. Okay, truth is essential for biblical love, and the world doesn't really care about that. What else? How is it different than how uh, we are taught love is. Brennan. Okay, yes. Emily. It's about sacrifice and the world is about what you can get from a relationship. Right. This definition of love emphasizes the idea of sacrifice and the world is just what you can get. Like, love in the world is me. Look at me. You must accept me however I want. Right? Uh, uh, love in the world has the idea of following the desires of your heart. Right? If you love somebody, you're going to encourage them to follow the desires of the heart. A heart who is desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? Right? So that's a very different. How else is this different? It's conditional. It's conditional. Right? You know. Right. So love must be earned in the world by a particular standard, right? There's a uh, meritorious system that the world implicitly gives us in order to, to decide if we're going to love somebody or not, and this is the opposite of that. Dina? Right. Right. If, uh, you love, your, you love somebody till they don't make you happy anymore, then you discard or don't love them anymore. What else? All right, so <clears throat> the first thing that Paul tells us is um, that our love is not dependent upon the worthiness of the beloved. Love, that's why, the, so the husband is to love his wife unconditionally. That means that the love is not based on how worthy the wife is of that love. Remember the pattern? The analogy is Christ's love for the church, for us. And remember that Christ loved us when we were not worthy to be loved. The, 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 the scriptures teach that. That Christ loved us while we were not worthy to be loved. The answer is yes, just in case you're... Uh, <laughs> but can you think of where in the Bible that might be taught? Okay, we love because he first loved us. Yes, First John 4. What else? They, uh, 
That's a good one. I was, you need to read my mind. I'm thinking of a different one. As part of the Romans road. Romans 5.8. God did what? God commended, displayed his love toward us. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's not based on worthiness on our part, right? There. So we're, as husbands, we're to seek the good of our wife, whether she deserve it, deserves it or not. The opposite of Dina's co-worker, uh, where when the husband stops making her happy, that's it. Christ's love, Christ-like love is not merely a feeling or a passion, though those should be there. So I think something we have to, to not do okay, is this. We react against the world, this idea of the feeling, seeing, and uh, we, we're not that. Then we react over here where we don't try to engender any feelings towards, right? It's all duty. And shouldn't be that either. I love you because God told me to. <laughs> That's not the picture here either. Remember the Lord's Supper, uh, especially in Luke 22, we have this description of Jesus and says, he speaks with his, his disciples, and, and it is a Hebraism, so he's using an inf- what probably was an infinitive in Aramaic or Hebrew there. I'm saying that for Scott's sake. Uh, <laughs> the only one that probably understands what uh, that is. But if you translate word for word, it says, with desire I have desired to eat this supper with you. Like, with, with great desire... I am eating this thing with you. So he wasn't giving himself to the cross just because he had to, but he wanted to because he, he had emotions, affections for those people as well there. And because the command to love is to the husband, the husband is to be the initiator in love. That's what Christ did in verse 25. He loved us first. And that's the pattern. So... We should not be just waiting for our wives to initiate whatever love is. We need to be initiators of love. Real men do that, right? They don't wait for, for the woman to do that. Any questions? So the first thing, the first f- pattern that we find in Christ's love for the church that translates into a husband's love for his wife is that he is to love her unconditionally. We're going to stop here because of time. We'll pick up more next week with the other six um, adverbs that modify the word love, that describes the word love, the verb love, on how we are to love our wives. Any last comment or questions? All right, so I'll say this as we finish. <clears throat> not every one of you is married. Not every one of you will get married. Not every one of you is a male. You all know that, right? So I'm just stating the obvious. Remember, Captain Obvious here. But even if you're not in the marriage category, this is important for you for several reasons. It helps you understand the love of Christ for you better. One. Two, you're called to disciple others. And you don't have to experience a thing in order to help others in that thing because the scriptures give us that. Three, you women... We might think, oh, now I'm going to turn it off so that, because this is not for me. Blah, 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 blah. When it gets to me again, I'll turn it on. One, if you're thinking about marrying, 
these are the things you're going to be looking at a man. Not the biceps, not the six-packs, though there's nothing wrong with also adding that to the side there. But these are the things you need to know. All the women who may not be getting married or married or whatever, you also, in Titus 2, tells that you're going to teach the younger women what it means to be a wife and so on. And these are the things you need to help younger women to value in a man as well. as. And you, older men, you need to disciple the younger men. You need to come along them and help them be this. God has instituted the preaching of his word and he does greatly through that. But that's, uh, that's a gunshot approach. Shotgun. Shotgun approach. In that it goes out, right? And hopefully it hits everybody. But a lot, a lot of, of us guys need a sniper approach. I mean, somebody in our lives, an older man in our lives, will actually put their, his arm around us and says, here, you dummy. No, probably not with those words. <laughs> but here, this is what it means to be a, a man who can be a husband who is going to glorify Christ in his marriage. So it's important for all of us to listen to this. All right? So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the perfect rule for faith and practice. We pray that you'd help us to honor you as we, by your grace, fulfill the roles that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.